0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player, so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsene Lupin, The Seven of Hearts, Part 1, by Maurice LeBlanc. In the last chapter, we learnt all about the origins of Arsene Lupin. This story will be one of unusual burglary, mysterious deaths, and sudden disappearance. First, Let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. It's common to have thoughts racing through your mind at bedtime, and it can make it hard to settle down. Tonight, while you're listening to this podcast, I want you to try and think about the thoughts that you're having. Sum up what they're about in one word, then tell yourself, it's just a thought, and I don't need to be having it right now, all I need to do is concentrate on having a good night's rest. And so, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. 6 – The Seven of Hearts I am frequently asked this question, how did you make the acquaintance of Arsène Lupin? My connection with Arsène Lupin was well known, the details that I gathered concerning that mysterious man, the irrefutable facts that I presented, the new evidence that I produce The interpretation that I place on certain facts of which the public has only seen the exterior manifestations, without being able to discover the secret reasons or the invisible mechanism, all establish, if not an intimacy, at least amicable relations and regular confidences. But how did I make his acquaintance? Why was I selected to be his historiographer? Why I, and not someone else? The answer is simple. Chance alone presided over my choice. My merit was not considered. It was Chance that put me in his way. It was by chance that I was participant in one of his strangest and most mysterious adventures. And by chance that I was an actor in a drama of which he was the marvellous stage director, an obscure and intricate drama, bristling with such thrilling events that I feel a certain embarrassment in undertaking to describe it. The first act takes place during that memorable night of the 22nd of June, of which so much has already been said, and, for my part, I attribute the anomalous conduct of which I was guilty on that occasion to the unusual frame of mind in which I found myself on my return home. I had dined with some friends at the Cascade restaurant, and the entire evening, whilst we smoked and the orchestra played melancholy waltzes, we talked only of crimes and thefts and dark and frightful intrigues. That is always a poor overture to a night's sleep. The St. Martins went away in an automobile. Jean Dasprey, that delightful, heedless Dasprey, who, six months later, was killed in such a tragic matter on the frontier of Morocco. Jean Dasprey and I returned on foot through the dark, warm night. When we arrived in front of the little house in which I had lived for a year at Newley, on the boulevard Malliot, he said to me, Are you afraid? What an idea! But this house is so isolated, no neighbours, vacant lots, really, I am not a coward. And yet… Well, you are very cheering, I must say. Oh." I say that as I would say anything else. The St. Martins have impressed me with their stories of brigands and thieves. We shook hands and said good night. I took out my key and opened the door. Well, that is good, I murmured. Antoine has forgotten to light a candle. Then I recalled the fact that Antoine was away and I had given him a short leave of absence. Forthwith, I was disagreeably oppressed by the darkness and silence of the night. I ascended the stairs on tiptoe and reached my room as quickly as possible. Then, contrary to my usual habit, I turned the key and pushed the bolt. The light of my candle restored my courage yet I was careful to take my revolver from its case, a large, powerful weapon, and place it beside my bed. That precaution completely reassured me. I laid down and, as usual, took a book from my night table to read myself to sleep. Then I received a great surprise. Instead of the paper knife which I had marked my place on the proceeding. I found an envelope, closed with five seals of red wax. I seized it eagerly. It was addressed to me and marked urgent. A letter. A letter addressed to me. Who could have put it in that place? Nervously, I tore open the envelope and read. From the moment you open this letter, whatever happens... Whatever you may hear, do not move, do not utter one cry, otherwise you are doomed. I am not a coward, and, quite as well as another, I can face real danger or smile at the visionary perils of imagination. But let me repeat, I was in an anomalous condition of mind, with my nerves set on edge by the events of the evening. Besides, was there not, in my present situation, something startling and mysterious, calculated to disturb the most courageous spirit? My feverish fingers clutched the sheet of paper, and I read and reread those threatening words. Do not move. Do not utter one cry, otherwise you are doomed. Nonsense, I thought. It is a joke, the work of some cheerful idiot. I was about to laugh, a good loud laugh. Who prevented me? What haunting fear compressed my throat? At least I would blow out the candle. No. I could not do it. Do not move, or you are doomed," were the words he had written. These auto-suggestions are frequently more imperious than the most positive realities, but why should I struggle against them? I had simply to close my eyes. I did so. At that moment, I heard a slight noise, followed by crackling sounds proceeding from a large room used by me as a library. A small room or antechamber was situated between the library and the bedchamber. The approach of an actual danger greatly excited me, and I felt a desire to get up, seize my revolver, and rush into the library. I did not rise, I saw one of the curtains of the left window move. There was no doubt about it, the curtain had moved. It was still moving, and I saw, oh, I saw quite distinctly, in the narrow space between the curtains and the window, a human form, a bulky mass that prevented the curtains from hanging straight and it is equally certain that the man saw me through the large mesh of the curtain. Then I understood the situation. His mission was to guard me while the others carried away their booty. Should I rise and seize my revolver? Impossible. He was there, at the least movement, at the least cry. I was doomed. Then came a terrific noise that shook the house. This was followed by lighter sounds, two or three together, like those of a hammer that rebounded. At least, that was the impression formed in my confused brain. These were mingled with other sounds, thus creating a veritable uproar which proved that the intruders were not only bold, but felt themselves secure from interruption. They were right. I did not move. Was it cowardice? No, rather weakness. A total inability to move any portion of my body, combined with discretion. For why should I struggle? Behind that man, there were ten others who would come to his assistance. Should I risk my life to save a few tapestries and bibelots? Throughout the night, my torture endured. Insufferable torture. Terrible anguish. The noises had stopped, but I was in constant fear of their renewal, and the man... The man who was guarding me, weapon in hand. My fearful eyes remained cast in his direction, and my heart beat, and a profuse perspiration oozed from every pore of my body. Suddenly, I experienced an immense relief. A milk wagon, whose sound was familiar to me, passed along the boulevard, and At the same time, I had an impression that the light of a new day was trying to steal through the closed window blinds. At last, daylight penetrated the room, other vehicles passed along the boulevard, and all the phantoms of the night vanished. Then I put one arm out of the bed, slowly and cautiously. My eyes were fixed upon the curtain, locating the exact spot at which I must fire. I made an exact calculation of the movements I must make. Then, quickly, I seized my revolver and fired. I leaped from my bed with a cry of deliverance and rushed to the window. The bullet had passed through the curtain and the window glass. But it had not touched the man, for the very good reason that there was none there. Nobody. Thus, during the entire night, I had been hypnotized by a fold of the curtain. And during that time, the malefactors, furiously, with an enthusiasm that nothing could have stopped, I turned the key, opened the door, crossed the antechamber, opened another door and rushed into the library, but amazement stopped me on the threshold, panting, astounded, more astonished than I had been by the absence of the man, all the things that I had supposed had been stolen, furniture, books pictures, old tapestries. Everything was in its proper place. It was incredible. I could not believe my eyes. Notwithstanding that uproar, those noises of removal. I made a tour. I inspected the walls. I made a mental inventory of all the familiar objects. Nothing was missing. And, what was more disconcerting, there was no clue to the intruders. Not a sign, not a chair disturbed, not the trace of a footstep. Well, well, I said to myself, pressing my hands on my bewildered head. Surely I'm not crazy. I heard something. Inch by inch, I made a careful examination of the room. It was in vain, unless I could consider this a discovery. Under a small Persian rug, I found a card, an ordinary playing card. It was the Seven of Hearts. It was like any other Seven of Hearts in a French playing deck, with this slight but curious exception. The extreme point Of each of the seven red spots or hearts was pierced by a hole, round and regular, as if made with the point of an awl. Nothing more. A card and a letter found in a book. But was that not sufficient to affirm that I had not been the plaything of a dream? Throughout the day, I continued my searches in the library, it was a large room, much too large for the requirements of such a house, and the decoration of which attested the bizarre taste of its founder. The floor was a mosaic of multicoloured stones, formed into a large, symmetrical design. The walls were covered with a similar mosaic, arranged in panels, Pompeian allegories. Byzantine compositions, frescoes of the Middle Ages, a Bacchus bestriding a cask, an emperor wearing a gold crown, a flowing beard, and holding a sword in its right hand. Quite high, after the style of an artist's studio, there was a large window, the only one in the room. That window being always open at night, it was possible that the men had entered through it by the aid of a ladder, but again, there was no evidence. The bottom of the ladder would have left some marks in the soft earth beneath the window, but there was none, nor were there any traces of footsteps in any part of the yard. I had no idea of informing the police because the facts I had before me were so absurd and inconsistent. They would laugh at me. However, as I was then a reporter of the staff of the Gill Blas, I wrote a lengthy account of my adventure, and it was published in the paper on the second day after. The article attracted some attention, but no one took it seriously. They regarded it as a work of fiction rather than a story of real life. The St. Martins rallied me, but Daspry, who took an interest in such matters, came to see me, made a study of the affair, but reached no conclusion. A few mornings later, the doorbell rang and Antoine came to inform me that a gentleman desired to speak with me. He would not give me his name. I directed Antoine to show him up. He was a man of about 40 years of age, with a dark complexion, lively features, and whose correct dress, slightly frayed, proclaimed a taste that contrasted strangely with his rather vulgar manners. Without any preamble, he said to me in a rough voice that confirmed my suspicion of his social position. Monsieur, whilst in a cafe, I picked up a copy of Gil Blas and read your article. It interested me very much. Thank you. And here I am. Ah. Yes, to talk to you. Are all the facts related by you quite correct? Absolutely so. Well, in that case, I can, perhaps, give you some information. Very well. Proceed. No, not yet. First, I must be sure that the facts are exactly as you have related them. I have given you my word. What further proof do you want? I must remain in this room alone. I do not understand, I said with surprise. It's an idea that occurred to me when reading your article. Certain details established an extraordinary coincidence with another case that came under my notice. If I'm mistaken, I shall say nothing more and the only means of ascertaining the truth is by my remaining in the room, alone. What was at the bottom of this proposition? Later, I recalled that the man was exceedingly nervous, but at the same time, although somewhat astonished, I found nothing peculiarly abnormal about the man or the request he made. Moreover, my curiosity was aroused, so I replied, Very well. How much time do you require? Oh, three minutes, not longer. Three minutes from now, I will rejoin you. I left the room and went downstairs. I took out my watch. One minute passed. Two minutes Why did I feel so depressed? Why did those moments seem so solemn and weird? Two minutes and a half. Two minutes and three quarters. Then I heard a pistol shot. I bounded up the stairs and entered the room. A cry of horror escaped me. In the middle of the room. The man was lying on his left side, motionless. Blood was flowing from a wound in his forehead. Near his hand was a revolver, still smoking. But, in addition to this frightful spectacle, my attention was attracted by another object. At two feet from the body, upon the floor, I saw a playing card. It was the Seven of Hearts. I picked it up. The lower extremity of each of the seven points was pierced with a small, round hole. A half hour later, the commissary of police arrived. Then the coroner and the chief of the Surete, Mondoudoui. I had been careful not to touch the corpse. The preliminary inquiry was very brief, and disclosed nothing. There were no papers in the pockets of the deceased, no name upon his clothes, no initial upon his linen, nothing to give any clue as to his identity. The room was in the same perfect order as before. The furniture had not been disturbed. Yet this man had not come to my house solely for the purpose of killing himself, or because he considered my place the most convenient one for his suicide. There must have been a motive for his act of despair, and that motive was, no doubt, the result of some new fact ascertained by him during the three minutes he was alone. What was that fact? What had he seen? What frightful secret had been revealed to him? There was no answer to these questions, but at the last moment, an incident occurred that appeared to us of considerable importance. As the two policemen were raising the body to place it on a stretcher, the left hand thus being disturbed, a crumpled card fell from it. The card bore these words. Georges Andermat, 37, Rue de Berry. What did that mean? Georges Andermat was a rich banker in Paris, the founder and president of the metal exchange, which had given such an impulse to the metallic industries in France. He lived in princely style, was the possessor of numerous automobiles, coaches, and an expensive racing stable. His social affairs were very select, and Madame Andermatt was noted for her grace and beauty. Can that be the man's name? I asked. The chief of the Sûreté leaned over him. It is not he, Mon Andermatt, is a thin man and slightly grey. But why this card? Have you a telephone, monsieur? Yes, in the vestibule. Come with me. He looked in the directory and then asked for number 415.21. Is Monsieur Andermatt at home? Please tell him that Monsieur Dudouis wished him to come at once to 102 Boulevard Maliot. Very important." Twenty minutes later, Monsieur Andermatt arrived in his automobile. After the circumstances had been explained to him, he was taken to see the corpse. He displayed considerable emotion and spoke in a low tone, and apparently unwillingly. "'Étienne Varin,' he said. "'You know him?' "'No. Or, at least, yes, by sight only. His brother?' "'Ah, he has a brother?' "'Yes, Alfred Varin. He came to see me once on some matter of business.' I forgot what it was. Where does he live? The two brothers live together, rue de Provence, I think. Do you know any reason why he should commit suicide? None. He held a card in his hand. It was your card, with your address. I do not understand that. It must have been there by some chance that will be disclosed by the investigation. A very strange chance, I thought, and I felt that the others entertained the same impression. I discovered the same impression in the papers the next day, and amongst all my friends with whom I discussed the affair. Amid the mysteries that enveloped it, after the double discovery of the Seven of Hearts pierced with the Seven Holes, after the two inscrutable events that had happened in my house, that visiting card promised to throw some light on the affair. Through it, the truth may be revealed, but, contrary to our expectations, Monsieur Andermat furnished no explanation. He said, I've told you all I know, what more can I do? I'm greatly surprised that my card should be found in such a place, and I sincerely hope the point will be cleared up. It will not. The official investigation established that the Varin brothers were of a Swiss origin, had led a shifty life under various names frequenting gambling resorts, associating with a band of foreigners who had been dispersed by the police after a series of robberies, in which their participation was established only by their flight. At number 24, Rue de Provence, where the Varen brothers had lived six years before, no one knew what had become of them. I confess that, for my part, the case seemed to me so complicated and so mysterious that I did not think the problem would ever be solved. So I concluded to waste no more time upon it. But Jean Dasprey, whom I frequently met at that period, became more and more interested in it each day. It was he who pointed out to me that item from a foreign newspaper which was reproduced and commented upon by the entire press. It was as follows. The first trial of a new model of submarine boat, which is expected to revolutionize naval warfare, will be given in presence of the former emperor at a place that will be kept secret until last minute. An indiscretion has revealed its name. It is called... The Seven of Hearts. The Seven of Hearts. That presented a new problem. Could a connection be established between the name of the submarine and the incidents which have related? But a connection of what nature? What had happened here could have no possible relation with the submarine. What do you know about it? said Dasprey to me. The most diverse effects often proceed from the same cause. Two days later, the following foreign news item was received and published. It is said that the plans of the new submarine, Seven of Hearts, were prepared by French engineers who have sought, in vain, the support of their compatriots subsequently entered into negotiations with the British Admiralty without success. I do not wish to give undue publicity to certain delicate matters which once provoked considerable excitement. Yet, since all danger of injury therefrom has now come to an end, I must speak of the article that appeared in the Écho de France which aroused so much comment at the time and which threw considerable light upon the mystery of the Seven of Hearts. This is the article as it was published over the signature of Salvatore. The Affair of the Seven of Hearts. A Corner of the veil Raised. We will be brief. Ten years ago, a young mining engineer, Louis Lacombe, wishing to devote his time and fortune to certain studies, resigned his position he then held and rented number 102 Boulevard Malio, a small house that had been recently built and decorated for an Italian count. Through the agency of the Varen brothers of Lucian, one of whom assisted in the preliminary experiments and the other acted as financial agent. The young engineer was introduced to Georges Andermat, the founder of the metal exchange. After several interviews, he succeeded in interesting the banker in a submarine boat on which he was working. And it was agreed that as soon as the invention was perfected, Monsieur Andermatt would use his influence with the Minister of Marine to obtain a series of trials under the discretion of the government. For two years, Louis Lacoon was a frequent visitor at Andermatt's house, and he submitted to the banker the various improvements he made upon his original plans, until one day, being satisfied with the perfection of his work he asked Monsieur Andermatt to communicate with the Minister of Marine. That day, Louis Lacombe dined at Monsieur Andermatt's house. He left there about half past 11 at night. He has not been seen since. A perusal of the newspapers of that date will show that the young man's family caused every possible inquiry to be made but without success, and it was the general opinion that Louis Lacombe, who was known as an original and visionary youth, had quietly left for parts unknown. Let us accept that theory, improbable though it may be, and let us consider another question, which is a most important one for our country. What has become of the plan of the submarine? Did Louis Lacombe carry them away? Are they destroyed? After making a thorough investigation, we are able to assert, positively, that the plans are in existence and are now in possession of the two brothers Varen. How did they acquire such a possession? That is a question not yet determined nor do we know why they have not tried to sell them at an earlier date. Did they fear that their title to them would be called into question? If so, they've lost that fear, and we can announce definitely that the plans of Louis Lacombe are now the property of foreign power and we are in a position to publish the correspondence that passed between the Varen brothers and the representative of that power. The Seven of Hearts, invented by Louis Lacombe, has been actually constructed by our neighbour. Will the invention fulfil the optimistic expectations of these who were concerned in the treacherous act? And a postscript adds, Later, our special correspondent informs us that the preliminary trial of the Seven of Hearts has not been satisfactory. It is quite likely that the plans sold and delivered by the Varen brothers did not include the final document carried by Louis Lecombe to Monsieur Andermat on the day of his disappearance, a document that was indispensable to a thorough understanding of the invention. It contained a summary of the final conclusions of the inventor, and estimates and figures not contained in the other papers. Without this document, the plans are incomplete. On the other hand, without the plans, the document is worthless. Now is the time to act and recover what belongs to us. It may be a difficult matter, but we rely upon the assistance of Monsieur Andemat. It will be to his interest to explain his conduct, which has hitherto been so strange and inscrutable. He will explain not only why he concealed these facts at the time of the suicide of Etienne Varin but also why he has never revealed the disappearance of the paper, a fact well known to him. He will tell why, during the last six years, he paid spies to watch the movements of the Varin brothers. We expect from him not only words, but acts, and at once, otherwise. The threat was plainly expressed but of what did it consist? What whip of Salvatore, the anonymous writer of the article, holding over the head of Monsieur Andemat? An army of reporters attacked the banker, and ten interviewers announced the scornful manner in which they were treated. Thereupon, the Écho de France announced its position in these words. Whether Monsieur Andermatt is willing or not, he will be, henceforth, our collaborator in the work we have undertaken. Daspry and I were dining together on the day on which that announcement appeared. That evening, with the newspapers spread over my table, we discussed the affair and examined it from every point of view with that exasperation that a person feels when walking in the dark and finding himself constantly falling over the same obstacles. Suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, the door opened and a lady entered. Her face was hidden behind a thick veil. I rose at once and approached her is it you monsieur who lives here she asked yes madame but i do not understand the gate was not locked she explained but the vestibule door she did not reply and it occurred to me that she had used the servant's entrance how did she know the way then there was a silence that was quite embarrassing. She looked at Daspry, and I was obliged to introduce him. I asked her to be seated and explain the object of her visit. She raised her veil, and I saw that she was a brunette with regular features, and, though not handsome, she was attractive, principally on account of her sad, dark eyes. I am Madame Andermatt, she said. Madame Andermatt, I repeated with astonishment. After a brief pause, she continued with a voice and manner that were quite easy and natural. I have come to see you about that affair, you know. I thought I might be able to obtain some information. Mon dieu, madame, I know nothing but what has already appeared in the papers, but if you will point out in what way I can help you, I do not know, I do not know. Not until then did I suspect that her calm demeanour was assumed, and that some poignant grief was concealed beneath that air of tranquillity. For a moment, we were silent and embarrassed. Then Daspry stepped forward and said, Will you permit me to ask you a few questions? Yes, yes, she cried. I will answer. You will answer, whatever those questions may be. Yes. Did you know Louis Lacombe? he asked. Yes, through my husband. When did you see him for the last time? The evening he dined with us. At that time, was there anything to lead you to believe that you would never see him again? No, but he had spoken of a trip to Russia, in a vague way. Then you expect to see him again? Yes he was to dine with us two days later. How do you explain his disappearance? I cannot explain it. And Monsieur Andermatt? I do not know. Yet the article published in the Écho de France indicates, yes, that the Varin brothers had something to do with his disappearance. Is that your opinion? Yes. On what do you base your opinion? When he left our house, Louis Lacombe carried a satchel containing all the papers relating to his invention. Two days later, my husband, in a conversation with one of the Varin brothers, learned that the papers were in his possession. And he did not denounce them. No. Why not? Because there was something else in the satchel, something besides the papers of Louis Lacombe. What was it? She hesitated, was on the point of speaking, but, finally, remained silent. Dasbury continued. I presume that is why your husband has kept a close watch over their movements instead of informing the police. He hoped to recover the papers and, at the same time, that compromising article which has enabled the two brothers to hold over him threats of exposure and blackmail. Over him and over me. Ah, over you also. Over me in particular. She uttered the last words in a hollow voice. Daspry observed it. He paced to and fro for a moment, then turning to her, asked, Had you written to Louis Lacombe? Of course. My husband had business with him. Apart from those business letters, had you written to Louis Lacombe? Other letters. Excuse my insistence. But it is absolutely necessary that I should know the truth. Did you write other letters? Yes, she replied, blushing. And those letters came into the possession of the Varin brothers. Yes. Does Monsieur Andemat know it? He has not seen them, but Alfred Varin has told him of their existence and threatened to publish them if my husband should take any steps against him. My husband was afraid of a scandal, but he has tried to recover the letters. I think so, but I do not know. You see, after that last interview with Alfred Varen, and after some harsh words between me and my husband in which he called me to account we live as strangers. In that case, as you have nothing to lose, what do you fear? I may be indifferent to him now, but I am not the woman that he has loved, the one he would still love. Oh, I'm quite sure of that, she murmured in a fervent voice. He would still love me if he had not got hold of those cursed letters. What? Did he succeed? But the two brothers still defied him. Yes, and they boasted of having a secure hiding place. Well? I believe my husband discovered that hiding place. Ah, where was it? Here. Here? I cried in alarm. Yes. I always had that suspicion. Louis Lacombe was very ingenious and amused himself in his leisure hours by making safes and locks. No doubt, the Varin brothers were aware of that fact and utilised one of Lacombe's safes in which to conceal the letters, and the other things perhaps. But they did not live here, I said, before you came. Four months ago, the house had been vacant for some time, and they may have thought that your presence here would not interfere with them when they wanted to get the papers, but they did not count on my husband, who came here on the night of the 22nd of June, forced the safe, took what he was seeking, and left his card to inform the two brothers that he feared them no more and that their possessions were now reversed. Two days later, after reading the article in the Gilblas, Etienne Varin came here, remained alone in this room, found the safe empty, and killed himself. After a moment, Daspri said, A very simple theory. Has Monsieur Andermatt spoken to you since then? No." Has his attitude towards you changed in any way? Does he appear more gloomy, more anxious? No, I haven't noticed any change. And yet you think he has secured the letters. Now, in my opinion, he has not got those letters, and it was not he who came here on the night of the 22nd of June. Who was it then? The mysterious individual who is managing this affair, who holds all the threads in his hands, and whose invisible but far-reaching power we have felt from the beginning. It was he and his friends who entered this house on the 22nd of June. It was he who discovered the hiding place of the papers. It was he who left Monsieur Andermatt's card, it is he who now holds the correspondence and evidence of the treachery of the Varin brothers. Who is he? I asked impatiently. The man who writes letters to the Echo de France, Salvatore. Have we not convincing evidence of that fact? Does he not mention in his letters certain details that no one could know? except the man who had thus discovered the secrets of the two brothers. "'Well, then,' stammered Madame Andermatt in great alarm, "'he has my letters also, and it is he who now threatens my husband. "'Mon dieu, what am I to do?' "'Write to him,' declared Daspry. "'Confide in him without reserve. "'Tell him all you know.' and all you may hereafter learn. Your interest and his interest are the same. He is not working against Mon Andermatt, but against Alfred Varin. Help him. How? Has your husband the document that completes the plans of Louis Lacombe? Yes. Tell that to Salvatore, and if possible, procure the document from him write to him at once. You risk nothing. The advice was bold, dangerous even at first sight, but Madame Andermatt had no choice. Besides, as Dasprey had said, she ran no risk. If the unknown writer were an enemy, that step would not aggravate the situation. If he were a stranger, seeking to accomplish a particular purpose, he would attach to these letters only a secondary importance. Whatever might happen, it was the only solution offered to her, and she, in her anxiety, was only too glad to act on it. She thanked us effusively and promised to keep us informed. In fact, two days later, She sent us the following letter that she had received from Salvatore. I have not found the letters, but I will get them. Rest easy. I am watching everything. S. I looked at the letter. It was in the same handwriting as the note I found in my book on the night of the 22nd of June. Despria was right. Salvatore was... Indeed, the originator of that affair.